Who the Wild Things Are with Ryan McGuire. You gotta listen to your body. Oh my God, maybe, you know, I could get out there. I could do this. Let's take a ride. Find your wild side. Real stories. See with your own eyes. It's so beautiful. I'm gonna have the best time out here. Yeah, I was in tears. I was like, that's the best, man. Welcome back to Who the Wild Things Are. My name is Ryan McGuire, and I'm here to bring you conversations with the most wild folks on the planet. If you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a rating and review on your podcast platform of choice. And if you enjoyed the episode, share it with a friend. Appreciate you guys. Let's get it going. What's up, guys? Today's episode is brought to you by Ice Barrel. If you're like me, you're always looking for ways to recover quicker, reduce inflammation, feel more awake and alert. And Ice Barrel is one of those tools that I rely on heavily. I use it just about every day and certainly multiple times per week. The Ice Barrel is exactly what it sounds like. It is a large barrel that allows you to cold plunge from the comfort of your own home. If you can't make it to a river, sometimes the ice barrel is just that added bit of convenience that makes the cold plunge that much more accessible. If you guys are looking to get your own ice barrel right now, you can use code RYANM at checkout and you can get $95 off your very own ice barrel. Once again, that's code RYANM at checkout on icebarrel.com. You'll get $95 off. Thank you guys for listening. Let's do the show. <laughs> I say we send it. I say yeah, we, send we, we send it. it. We send it. We send it. Um, yeah, that's great. Can you close that one? Yeah. Cool. Sweet. We're rocking, dude. Yeah. Welcome to the new studio. Pumped to have you. Dude, it's so cool in here. I think you did an amazing job. And I saw a couple of your podcasts and I was like wondering what it was going to look like in person. So good stuff. Yeah. Thanks for coming. I've wanted to have you on the podcast for a long time and the the particular thought process behind it is when i started the podcast i kind of made a mission statement or like a one-liner and it was basically um talk to folks who have turned their passion into a priority so it's not like about fitness or about outdoor adventure it's about folks that took a passion of theirs and turned it into a priority and succeeded in doing so and so i think you are one of the greatest examples in that and now you've done it in kind of a couple different aspect, aspects of your life. So yeah. I'm excited to hear Thanks. some of those stories. Well, that's really cool of you to bring up because what I wanted to not talk about until we were on camera. I'm ready. We basically like didn't break the ice until we came in and recorded. And I thought that was such a cool idea because we're, we've become good friends and we've bonded really well. And I... Um, I've, we've really never like shared life stories. And so I had no idea what we we're going to come in and talk about today. And this is the first time I've ever done a podcast where I'm like, I have no clue and I don't want to know. And then I also started thinking about myself because of that. And I was like, gosh, I'm almost like unclassifiable. Like how, like, and I was like, I wonder how he was going to classify me or like how he has perceived me so far. Um, and I don't say that in an arrogant way. I just like, I feel like I come from a million different directions and, and my brain works in a, in a kind of a crazy wonky way. And I love the way it does, but, um, I think it's why we've become kindred spirits as well as cause you're similar to me. But, um, yeah, I was just really like excited to like, what's this going to, what are we going to talk about? And well, you know what how's it gonna go and how does he even perceive me so yeah I, I think that's a great way to kick it off and i'm super pumped to find out i think honestly we probably have done a couple podcasts already that haven't been recorded yeah you know there's a couple times like dang i wish we would have recorded that yeah, yeah that sauna session would have been 
one of the cooler, you know, like any of the sauna sessions would have been like yeah. a really, really cool experience for folks to hear, especially uh, your unique personality and, and all the weird things you've done, the weird stories that you have. So Awesome. Well, I think this is a great way to unearth it all, and, uh, and we can probably think of a lot of those stories. So, so if someone's listening, they're like, I have no idea who this Bickle character is. Um, give them just maybe like a quick elevator pitch. Who's Matthew Bickle and, and yeah. what are you known for? Um, my name is Matthew Bickle. I am known for my passion, I think, is at least what I want to be known for. Um, I'm extremely passionate about a few things that I've, I've turned into like life passions, one being um, the cannabis plant and two being my fitness. And I think that the blend of those two is, um, is kind of we're at the forefront of that in our time and day right now and in, in the world we live in. And I think that we're finally evolving as a, as a culture to, to have our eyes open to the idea of like one prioritizing fitness and two prioritizing wellness and cannabis is the ultimate wellness when used correctly in my opinion, um, or can be one of the ultimate pieces of the puzzle and uh, fitness also being a huge one of those. And I found a kind of a way to integrate those two into my life and, um, and then just fuel it with passion. And I think that anyone that would try and categorize me would say that I'm a little crazy and that anything that I really care about and love, I'm, really really all in and i think everyone believes me if I, that knows me at least yeah i think that's that's very true how did you get into the cannabis industry were you just because we've seen such a major paradigm shift in our lifetime between when we were kids and it was the devil's lettuce yeah to where it is now um and being you know mutually respected by people that use it or people uh that don't partake in it so how did you get involved so um, I'm trying to think of where to even start from. I I thought cannabis came from a Ziploc baggie. As a kid. <laughs> I really did. I didn't know. You know what I mean? Like I, it was the first thing I saw it in, and so I didn't think past that. And then um, and then I like was behind my friend's parents' shed and smoked a bowl of weed and like got the first time I got stoned was one of the first times in my life that I felt like the weight of the world lifted off me. I was a stressed out young kid. I was, um, just didn't have the most confidence. And for whatever reason, this plant and I resonated and, and the, the effect from the plant was at least alleviating enough to want to, to, um, want to investigate it more. And so then I found out it could be grown. And then like, as I've already stated, I'm a psycho and I'm very passionate. And so, um, went all in like immediately, like 14 years old. I was just like fascinated by this plant and wanted to know everything about it and the way it could be grown. And I found out it, could, it wasn't from a baggie that it was a plant that you grew. And so, and then found out that the better you grew it and the more you loved it and the more you seeked it out, the better the experience was for you to use and had some crazy, like, man, from 14 to 18, the amount of like realizations I was having internally with culture and family and everything telling me I was wrong and I was going to jail and that I was stupid and I was a drug addict and like, but then sitting there going, gosh, this really is working for me though. And having no medical data to back me up for even my own reassurance, much less anyone else's, um, was a really crazy growth period for me where all I had was the plant to develop the relationship with. And so I started cultivating the plant illegally and, um, going to Amsterdam every like spring break and every opportunity I had through college to buy seeds and go to a place where it was grown and see it grown and just literally swallowed up the entire 
um, kind of culture of cannabis, which is I, whenever I talk about this stuff, I love to talk about like drug culture versus cannabis culture. And in our era of growing up, it was just drug culture. There was no separation. And I started to see this cannabis culture and, and without my amount of time I was spending doing it was helping create the cannabis culture also, which was just like, you know, it's okay to smoke pot and not drink alcohol and not do drugs and be a, a, a totally functioning member of society that's a high functioning member of society. And it's something that I was really passionate about, even just being an advocate for it, uh, being a spokesperson and being a poster child and being like, hey, if you don't believe me, watch my life and see. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and so I felt like the responsibility to thrive and to be responsible and to be ethical with the plant so that when people looked at me under a microscope, they saw nothing but good coming from it, and they had to at least start thinking about, is this something that's not drug culture? Just you know? shattering the stereotypes of pothead or um, that it makes you lazy and that it makes you an unproductive member of society. You're saying, I'm going to be the poster child in my friend group saying that this is something that can be used for good if used in the right way. Yep. And, I, and it got me to quit drinking alcohol mm-hmm. and at a really pivotal age too, like 24, 25, when everybody was like getting out of college, making money, the culture from college drinking was still around. And so um, they were all just, everyone was going all in on alcohol. And I, I was watching it and not, I was participating because I didn't know better. And the first time I had a full jar of like my own homegrown cannabis and I knew that there was another jar before I could finish this jar was like within a week I quit drinking alcohol. I was at a bar one night and I was like, why do I do this? And the only answer I could come up with is because everyone else. And I was like, that is a sorry thing. Like if everyone else was doing anything else, would you do it? And I was like, I'm the, I'm always going against the grain. That's how my, my brain always thinks if everyone's going right, there's gotta be something fun to check out on the left. And so I tried it and it was at a pivotal age where everyone was becoming alcoholics and I could have easily gone down that road. And instead I got to become like an example of, of what's possible, which is this, like, there's a funny term for it. They call it California sober. I don't Mm -hmm. know if you've heard this or not, but it's like, if you use psychedelics and cannabis, um, then you're California sober. Like I don't, I don't take drugs or drink, but I'm, I'm a California sober. So, uh, yeah, I kind of started that movement a long time ago. I feel like. Yeah, my mom is a recovery specialist, so she, I've heard that term thrown around before. And yeah, uh, I think one of the interesting things that plays into all this is the fact that you were a really high-level athlete during all this time too. You weren't just focused on you know smoking weed; you were focused on developing your career in football and developing strength and passion for a sport at the same time. So, how did those two play off of each other and? And were they ever at odds? Yeah, so very much so. Um, and I forgot to mention, I, I love, like, a lot of guys I played college football with, that was like, if you go into their house, you'll know within five minutes that they played there. And um, I love that it's one of the things that I forget. And I'm not saying that arrogantly. Like, it's a very small detail, but it was it, it made some major, major changes in my life. Mm-hmm. It taught me accountability and responsibility, which I – as a business owner, that's the most important two lessons I've ever learned. And I learned that on the football field from my coaches and from my teammates. Um, as far as being a cannabis consuming football player, um, one, I was way ahead of the game. I was at 19 years old, I was recovering my body with cannabis and helping with inflammation, helping with all the aches and pains of the injuries and helping with CTE and head trauma by using this plant that we've now proven works wonderfully for all those symptoms and for all those problems. But we didn't know then, but in my trial and error of being a kid, it seemed to help a lot. And when everybody else would go out and binge drink after football games, I would smoke a joint and I'd kind of like, you know, my head would feel better. My shoulders and body would feel better and I'd relax and I'd be able to sleep better. So, um, 
they worked wonderfully. And then I got to Baylor University in Texas, and that is a very anti Texas is anti-cannabis state. They're anti-cannabis university. It's a Baptist university. And um, I failed my first couple drug tests there. I've never told this in public. Um, I failed my first couple drug tests there um, for cannabis and then got pulled in and got yelled at and, and then like proceeded to like set the squat record and become the starting right tackle. And they never said another word again about it. And so, um, and at the, that time I was never told this, but uh, we started cultivating in college and, um, and we were going to Amsterdam and buying seeds and bringing them back and, um, learning how to grow them on our own at, at, in Texas. And that was, um, I definitely knew at that moment that I was at a crossroads that I didn't want to, like football had gotten me to where I needed to get, to get to my actual passion. And I knew that this plant was my passion and it was really confusing because I was like, well, choosing the life of a criminal and like, but I don't think I'm doing anything ethically or morally wrong. And so when you ethically and morally can stare yourself in the mirror, the criminal part kind of sheds away. And um, I, I always practiced ethics and the same business ethics that I do now and the same way I've always approached um, treating other people. I did when I was a, you know, a legal grower and I was highly successful at that. And I took those same practices into the legal market and have become pretty successful in that as well. Yeah, so you kind of had a hand in shaping uh, the frontier that evolved with the legalization of marijuana. What were those days like coming coming up through it being illegal and all you know is illegal marijuana for so many years? And then there's this kind of paradigm shift. What was going through your head when you saw that this bill was going to, to shift the public opinion? I mean, I have goosebumps right now. Like it. Uh it's something you dream about and hope about and manifest. And like, you don't even understand at a young age what manifesting is. But when you, when you speak things into existence, you're like, I'm going to be a grower. And I'm, you know, and like you think it's going to get legalized. And every stoner's had around, like, we should legalize weed if we all voted for it. And I actually have the friends who did it. And um, the attorney's office, uh, they're called Vicente Cedarberg. They're out of Denver. And they were the authors of Amendment 64, which was the 2014 rec legalization of cannabis here in Colorado for adult use. So free use, no medical card, no nothing. You can go in and buy it the same as alcohol. Um, They were the authors of that. And man, it was like winning the lottery every single day. And I'm not joking. Every day I'd wake up and I'd be like, holy cow, this cannabis is legal now. Like now I can drive. I was able to drive down to stores on South Broadway with a backpack full of my weed that I grew in my basement while I like had the time of my life vacationing with my friends and seeing lots of music. And then I would take this backpack and walk into these stores. This is the early, early days. Sure. But it was legal. And you walk in, you show them the weed, they buy it cash, they make you a receipt, you go home and you have a big stack of cash. And I was like, uh, whenever I tell my story, there's a lot of epitaph moments. There's a lot of moments where I'm like, if it could have just stayed like this. And, and But what's funny for me is, Every time I've ever wanted to bottle it up and save it and make it stay, it's blown away my wildest expectations. And then I want to bottle that up, and then that blows away my – and so now I've learned to not put a cap on it anymore. But, um, yeah, man, the feeling was – I knew I was a part of something really big. At first it didn't feel big, but as it started to build up and, and like mm. before 2014, it was like I'm just winning the lottery because I'm, I'm growing cannabis and I, I helped a friend open a dispensary. And so – I was in the legal cannabis market at that point. I was a legal pot grower and I couldn't even tell my family, um, which was strange. So I worked at a concert venue also. And I was like, I was still overcoming the stigma behind it, but I felt uh, very powerful and passionate about doing it. And I also was starting to see 
um, the coolest part of this story is that now at this point, there's people, moms moving their kids out from all around the country and all over the world to a place where cannabis, medical cannabis was legal and accessible for their children who have mm. 15, 20 seizures a day. Wow. And, and for me who had no medical data on cannabis whatsoever, but just was really passionate about this plant that it kind of transformed and changed my life so profoundly to see it working for real as medicine, getting kids off of seizure medication, getting kids to live normal lives again, and then also getting people who are you know using horrible drugs <clears throat> to use it as an alternative. Now we have so much data behind it now and we have so much wind in our sails, but then there was nothing. And so to see this actually on the front lines was like, blowing my mind and every night I would have a hard time sleeping the energy I felt I still feel it um it, it's just I've you know found it in different avenues in my life but I remember at that point in time being like we are about to rock this world on its side and like I've always hoped I would have a chance to change the world but I've never wanted to do it on someone else's terms mm. and I was finally seeing that I was given terms within which I could help change the world and do it on my own and I was like have been not on my own, but do it with other people on my terms that we all have and share, which is this counterculture belief and this, um, you know, way of living that's not just the normal kind of boring way. Yeah, it's, I'm not like a huge cannabis guy myself, but it always, even at a young age, baffled me that there is a plant that our government can tell us you can't have that occurs naturally in nature. It's like if they, you know, if they outlawed pine trees, it's, it's, <laughs> it's like a very confusing thing to think about. And even at a young age, I was like, how is a flower illegal? How, yeah. does, that, how does that make sense? And it, it's like, you're basically ignoring any idea of any divinity or any greater knowledge that, you know, these plants are here for a purpose and just saying, it's all bad. Get rid of all of it. You can't use any of yeah. it. And it seems like a very lazy way to approach a situation. If you want to go a step further, DMT is illegal, which is produced in our brains. So uh, Sturgill Simpson has a lyric in a song. It says, how do you make illegal something that we all make in our brains? Mm. <laughs> like, like how, we have illegal substances in our brains right now. Um, and the, the, with the plant, it's so crazy because I'm a Christian and I believe in God. And, and like I have some friends who are growers over in – um, Hawaii and they're like my first ever like real strong weed head Christian hardcore believers and like I've learned so much from they're a lot older than me and I've learned so much from them that like Genesis 1 seed bearing fruit bearing plants like we are instructed to use these plants and these mm. plants are medicines and they've been medicines for thousands and thousands of years and so many cultures have, have embraced them and just recently our American culture has made a lot of very, very like tenured plants that have been saving and helping people for thousands of years, so all of a sudden culturally box them as a drug mm. because they are mind altering and because they we're fearful of not knowing how to use them correctly. But thanks to like maps and, um, you know, the, every, there's just so many different people out there that are just popping the lid off this thing right now. And, yeah. and the, the genie's out, like she, she's not going back in. So, yeah. you know, the, we're, we're, weeks, months, years away from so much data coming our way and so many people's lives being able to be affected by all different plant medicines. So Yeah, and it's a bizarre thing that we saw that transformation in our lifetime and I think there it seems to have a trickle down effect, right, with fungi and other plant medicines mm -hmm. now. We you know, I'm sure you know more about it than I do, but there was a recent proposition for 
psilocybin use in Colorado or just Denver? Yeah, Color, uh, all whole state of Colorado. Whole state of Colorado. Yeah. So did you have any opinion on that? Is that a prop that you Strong supported? Opinion, yeah. One of my best friends actually wrote the bill and got it passed, Josh Kappel, um, who I'll shout him out. He's an attorney. Shout out Josh Kappel. Yeah. He, um, he wrote it and pushed for it, and he didn't just push for – uh, so he was one of the original authors of Amendment 64 for cannabis. So they knew the roadmap was there, and they thought that it was absolutely foolish to exactly what you just said, make a plant illegal. And so they fought for the legalization of all plant medicine, not just a specific mushrooms or one thing or the other. He fought for all of it and got every single plant legalized in the state of Colorado. So if you live in the state of Colorado and you mm-hmm. need to use a plant for medicine, there is not an illegal one here anymore. That is exceptional. Yeah. And, and I think – Plant or fungi, right? Does it, yep. it applies to all fungi? Fungi is plant. Have you heard? Um, you were just in Japan, so I think this is an interesting, uh, interesting segue to that. But Tokyo has a lot of uh, people researching fungi right now, and they're doing some really creative stuff. And they did this experiment with it, where they put a piece of oatmeal where every train stop was, so a node, right, in the system, mm-hmm. and then they put fungi in there where the mycelium have to connect and move from one piece of oatmeal to the next. Mm -hmm. And they did it mapped out like Tokyo's rail system. Mm -hmm. The fungi created a more efficient system to go from one node to the next, one stop to the next than humans were able to create. I believe it. And so like to say that we're smarter and we can legalize that, it's like, well, there's clearly intelligence there that like, it's not our intelligence. It doesn't think like we do, but it has some intelligence that we don't understand. If I, I've been growing cannabis for 20 years, I've been growing the same plant for 20 years. I've, I've focused hyper onto one tiny thing. And if there's anything I could tell the world about that plant is that it, plants have very much intelligence. And the, the plants are so much smarter than we are. We can eat ourselves until we die. Mm. Plants lock out their nutrients if you try and overfeed them. You think that you can like manipulate them and be like, well, if I eat too many calories, I get fat and I want these buds to get fat. So, I mean, these are things I learned when I was 20 years old, but truthfully, the plant is so intuitive and so aware of my energy and the energy that I bring into the room. And, and it's, I, I used to like, you know, think it was hippie jargon and, and then I just watched it work. And then I watched like seasons of my life where I had bad seasons and my plants had bad seasons. And then I'd watch when I'm thriving and how my plants thrive. And um, and it's it's I now I can't I have grows all over the place but I don't have any plants of my own unfortunately except for my house plants but it's very apparent in my house plants mm-hmm. I know you've been you've been to my house before and like it's people are always coming like what do you feed your plants I'm like I feed them water I feed them good energy you know what I mean like yeah. the the love inside of a room is is directly correlated to a plant that's an intelligent species mm. in my opinion do you think that your focus on understanding the cannabis plant made you more interested in botany as a whole. Um, I late in the game. I, I, I wish I could say yes and like sound really intelligent, but I remember I was just telling a friend of mine this. I remember wishing that I could like consider myself smart enough to get a botany degree in college because I love the cannabis plant so much. Mm-hmm. But instead I like tripled down on just getting really good at watching and learning and studying and trial and error. And that's how I've gained all of my knowledge to the point to where I didn't even know how to keep a house plant alive. And I had, you know, thriving grows around the country. And I was like, okay, I should probably learn this. You know what I mean? This is kind of embarrassing. I'm a plant guy. And I applied the same 
knowledge from the cannabis plant, which is a much more temperamental and tough plant to grow than any house plant. Mm. And I found it to be quite easy. <laughs> I was like, oh, wow, this is, I've been waiting my whole life fearful of like growing house plants. And then I grew probably one of the hardest plants there is to grow. The thing about the cannabis plant is it is a weed. It can grow in sidewalks. It's very easy to, to survive. Mm. It's very hard to make it thrive. Yeah. And making a cannabis plant thrive is something that I've spent better part of 20 years doing and definitely my my life's work i would say it's a difference between the plant growing and you cultivating the plant right 100 percent. and then experientially it's a difference between like zoning out watching tv and passing out or like having this heart opening experience where you laugh for 45 minutes and, mm-hmm. and experience a joy that you haven't understood before and i've seen it happen so many times crack people's hearts open with the same plant that when grown incorrectly gives you a headache and makes you fall asleep in 20 minutes. It's crazy. That, yeah. that is bizarre that the love put into it kind of equals like the output, right? Yeah. And the THC percentage and the amount of trichomes on it, every single th- step along the way when done correctly, all the, um, the data points are profoundly better. And from experience to yield to how much money you can make off all of those things mm-hmm. are the same. It's crazy how it just like it's linear. Do you think that, cannabis in some set and setting is appropriate for everyone or do you think that some people just shouldn't mess with it i think that it's the right set and setting it's appropriate for everyone but for daily use i think it's very slippery slope for people Mm. um i personally have i use it daily but i've replaced caffeine adderall any sleep medication any depression medication any headache medication any inflammation like i take two i take a um, a probiotic and a gut enzyme and cannabis. And that's what I use. And my, I'm healthy. I just got my blood work done. I'm 42 years old and I'm like as healthy as a 20 year old man. And, wow. and I use fitness and, and other pieces of wellness to add to that. But I can promise you that the, the contributing, a huge contributing factor is that I found this one replacement that's a natural, organic, you know, fits in line with all the other ways I treat my body to replace a lot of things that are hard to replace for some people, especially mm. at my age, and that are things that um, can really mess you up. You know, I, alcohol, caffeine, I mean, those are some big hitters there as far as yeah. what are screwing up people's lives. And to be able to replace all that with this plant that I can cultivate myself, I don't anymore, but I have my best friends who I can rely on um, who do still, is, um, man, it's just qu- such a cool shift in my life. And it's something that happened at a young age and had, again, no validation and almost the opposite of validation like scrutiny yeah. and then come fast forward to now and like a lot of people consider me a pretty smart guy so um where did the the road split where did it fork when you were thinking about going pro in football or pro in cannabis what was like that that thought process how did that chapter play out so i um i tore my mcl my last game of my senior year of Oof. football and it was like the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Wow. And I had no idea. I walked away like empty. I was like, what the heck? I had two more quarters to go. And then I can go pursue this thing in my life that like was this big shiny thing, but it was also like all the wrong reasons. And ironically about six months before I graduated from school and finished my football career, a friend of mine who an old friend had come back into my life and kind of got me back into hippie music like mm. Grateful Dead and Fish and Widespread Panic and and I was like listening to like hardcore rap uh, love and life you know wanting to get an Escalade with big rims and go to the league and that was like all I thought about yeah. and then all of a sudden I had like this 
person coming to my life and I'd met this other friend in college, my friend Paxton, and he was this hippie. And all of a sudden I was kind of like looking at this counterculture thing. And so literally these two amazing things were hanging right in front of my face. And I'm at also this major point in life where it's like, I'm about to graduate college. I'm moving on to the next phase of my life. How is it going to be? What am I going to do? And, um, tearing my MCL was like God's way of being like, go left. And so I was like, okay, torn MCL. I'm going to move to Colorado and ski a hundred days a year and start growing pot. And that Mm -hmm. was my goal. And I, um, achieved those goals. And, and I, I got, I spent like my last 600 bucks on a grow light. I mean, it's like this true hippie story <laughs> that buy my little grow light and set up this closet in my apartment and got a job at a hippie bar working the door. And my mom was like, you graduated from Baylor with an education degree and you're working the door at a grateful dead bar. And I was like, yeah, and I love it. And it's amazing. And I'm meeting all these people. And this whole time I'm literally building these relationships and this mm-hmm. network of the people that are going to legalize cannabis in the next 10 years. And I don't know it at the time. I'm just right. making friends with these cool people and kind of being a part of the music scene and evolving with everyone. And um, th- it was like no looking back. And, the, and I didn't even realize the shift until like s- a year later, my buddy had played for the Patriots for two years out of college, mm-hmm. won two Super Bowls, and then got this big, huge contract with the Cleveland Browns and came into town. So it had been three years. And he came into town to see me. And he was like my workout partner in college. And he was telling me about his life and I was telling him about my life. And we both agreed that I had the better deal. Wow. Yeah. And I was like, you've won two Super Bowls and you're starting D tackle on the Cleveland Browns. And we both agree. I'm having so much fun. I'm skiing my butt off. I'm like, no more concussions. My body feels good. You know, I'm making good money. I'm helping people out. All these sick people are coming to me and we're able to help them and heal them. And like, mm-hmm. this was like early in the days. And like, he was like, man, I would love to have that life. And it's so funny because that was the day I was like, yo, appreciate what you have and don't ever stop. And I, I have not, honestly. I'm yeah. if, One thing, if you know me, you know, I am in awe too. Like, I am so in awe of the 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 magic that happens around me and the people that come into my life because of it and it's all from just a place of love and 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 reflecting the light that we see from each other which is why I have you it's it's a great story and I would love to say like oh you just like stumbled into it but there is this like underlying wisdom that you had at a young age and the reason I know that is because I didn't have it and I I got introduced to the plant at a young age um never using it. I just had a family member that grew it. And before that, I was living in the Midwest and everyone, you know, was the devil's lettuce. So I assumed it was terrible. I came out to Colorado and I'm trimming plants. Like I'm a young kid. I'm like trimming them, drying them out, learning about these like vacuum seal bags. And then, you know, kind of inquiring. And they're like, yeah, this is, you know, we're giving these to cancer patients. And I'm like, what? Like trying to calculate in my little brain, like, what are, what are they talking about? Everyone said this stuff was like, poison like it's for hippies and it's terrible for you and then coming back like I started that opened my eyes and I started to realize that there was more to it and that the plant wasn't evil itself and it's more of like a use case scenario but you had that awakening on your own from just seeing the Ziploc baggie you didn't have anybody guiding you through you just kind of had this innate feeling that there was more to it than than what people were telling you yeah crazy it's all I can say is I have this love affair with this plant and it has it with me mm. and, and she will like always be my first love. And she will, she is all of my success and all of my happiness and all of my joy has come through God who made this plant, mm-hmm. who allows me to express my joy through this plant. And this plant gets to express its joy through me. And if that's not like the most 
beautiful definition of God, I don't know what is. So you have this amazing story. You're connecting with all these folks. And then now let's fast forward a little bit. What is the, what is the interaction with cannabis look like now in terms of like a business? Yeah. So now it's pretty cool. Now I'm doing the real work. Um, the old job was the cool part, growing the plant, the glory of it, the having the beautiful jar and showing your friends the nugs. Um, now I am on the forefront of pushing legalization of cannabis all the way across this country and across the world, hopefully eventually. Mm. Um, right now our main focus is in the United States. I have a few projects outside of the United States I've worked on, but our current focus is the East Coast and the South especially. So um, Texas, Florida, Georgia, Mississippi, Louisiana, South Carolina, North Carolina um, are all regions that we are either about to apply in, have applied and won licenses in, or are operating in. And so um, to me, that's where the kind of the country is really shut off um, from counterculture and from the understanding of it's not the devil's lettuce. And so I go into hostile environments where cannabis is not welcomed, help form companies that then um, work with, alongside the state government to write a bill to help legalize cannabis medically or recreationally or some form of the of the two in these states. And then once they have written and finished the bill, they usually do an application process for um, like a limited number of licenses. And then we apply and hopefully win. We've been real successful um, through like we've won, I think, over 20 licenses now in some of the toughest markets there are. And so then wow. From there, that's when the real work starts, which is designing and building out the facility, hiring and staffing it, and then um, also getting out in the community and changing their opinion and, and understanding and educating people on how this plant works and helps and how many jobs it can provide and how much um, good it can do in the world. And so that is kind of the broad stroke picture of my job. I have been really lucky and um, kind of evolved out of the boots on the ground guy to more the head coach guy, and um, I have done so by identifying some of the smartest people in the world and, and hiring hired them and um, we emphasize quality of life first and health and fitness and all the things that we could bleed into this next part of the conversation I'm sure um, and, and that's something that you know true happiness comes from doing what you're the best at and I found people that are the best at what I need them to do and so mm -hmm. I get to tell them every day they're the best and I get to sit back and watch it all the magic unfold and I kind of just move the chess pieces as I need to go. Yeah, it's interesting. The folks I've met through you uh, in the cannabis industry, they're not, um, you know, what maybe some people would expect. They're like really fit and, you know, go getters, very ambitious yeah. and like just ripping like big workouts into recovery sessions. And, you know, like you always paint this picture of like, oh, stoners are like lazy and eat yeah. potato chips. And they're like, huh, maybe it's not really like they painted that picture. Yeah. These, the people I, and then there's been an evolution in the industry. I think the, the early pioneer people, you could look around a room and be like, yeah, well, these guys, <laughs> these were just the risk takers. Um, but now it's got to this point where like if you're not on your game, like you're getting run over by somebody who is. And so the world that I've gotten to evolve to, which has been such a blessing because it's the standard I set for myself. And so in having it be there and work and in the workplace is so cool is like, if you're not crushing, you're getting crushed. And, and my people are all moving forward, not crushing other people, just crushing their goals, crushing their um, their delivery tasks and, and making it to where it's a really fun place to work inside my company, I believe. Um, I, I have some of like just some real geniuses mm. that can come in and diagnose things on such a higher level than I can. And I get to at least rely on my emotional intelligence as the leader and help these guys become, 
you know, use their IQs to just blow everyone away. And it's a really fun position to sit in. I, I can imagine like a Nick Saban, the head coach of Alabama, probably feels pretty good when he walks out on the field, even though he's not going to play a single snap. Yeah. And like that's how I kind of feel walking out on the field with my guys. I'm like, boy, my boys are about to mess you all up, but I'm not <laughs> even. I'm just going to sit back and admire it, you know? Coach Pickle. Yeah, that's right. That's awesome. So what states are like the – hardest most resistant markets right now well there were the easiest one to point out and it's a strange one is idaho is the only state out of the 50 states that do not have a some sort of legalized cannabis and so because of mormon no because um believe it or not utah allows medical cannabis and this is a fun fact the mormon a book i think it's called the book of mormon is so, yeah. an editable document right, right so right. the bible is like set in stone thousands of years this is okay. what it is the mormon book of mormon is an editable document they opened it up a year or two ago uh, and added medical cannabis into it okay wow and yeah it's so like right on mormons you know what i mean Sweet, like i'm yeah. so proud of these guys um, and so it is now a legal thing for Mormons. And so the state of Utah, we have, we've uh, helped open a, um, we built out a grow and helped a dispensary kind of get grow their um, size in Utah. Wholesome Co is the name of it. And they um, informed me of all this and they're crushing. Like, awesome. it's like, yeah, it's a limited license market, meaning that there's only like 10 dispensaries in the whole state. And so okay. you can imagine everyone smokes pot. And the funny thing about the Mormon rule, they allow for delivery there because the Mormons don't want to walk in and have their neighbors see them walking in the weed store. Interesting. And so delivery crushes there. You know what I mean? Versus like, and I, that's funny is back in the day, walking in the weed store, you're always like felt shady as like walking into the other weird places. But, uh, yeah, no. like going to a strip club. Yeah, or something. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, Oh gosh. Um, and now I'm like, walk out with my weed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's awesome. So, um, Idaho is a weird one, but truthfully the Southeast, um, and, and it's because of the pharmaceutical companies that have a stronghold on the U.S. government with pain pills and with mm. um, all the different junk that, that people are in the southeast really suffering from. Yeah. I, I know that it's a problem all across the country, but especially like Florida, Alabama, Georgia, down there in the south, there's a lot of pill uh like pill clinics where you can yeah, go what do you in. Call them? Cl- there's a name for those clinics. Yeah. Call- there's something, but they're literally, their job is to prescribe like as much as possible. Yep. And then you like drive to the next one, get your next prescription, drive to the next one. And then you just take all these pain pills all the time and pain pills are numbing. They do a job, but it's, it, they're, it's, grossly horrible on what it does to your body and your God. brain and your spirit and the way it shuts you down. And, um, I, I truly believe we have a conscious eye and I truly believe that there are plants and medicines that close your conscious eye. And I believe there's ones that open your conscious eye. Mm. And I, I think that any pain pills, any pharmaceuticals are just shutting you off to that vision that you could have. What does it look like to open your conscious eye then? What would be the opposite? Like, what would that feel like? Anything heart opening. So anything from meditation, um, any sort of flow state, um, cannabis for some people is a really quick way to get there. Um, I think that uh, psilocybin and LSD and uh, DMT, all the heavy psychoactive plants, which cannabis falls into that category, but they're much more profound as far as their strength. Mm. Um, I think those are great ones, but I truly think go on a five mile run, um, you know, do, yeah. do, do an hour of breath work, sit in the Creek for five minutes. Like there's so many ways to entry level, find it. And then once you're there, um, you can then the, it's, it's kind of like going to the grocery store. What do you want to put in the cart? You know what I mean? Do I want to yeah. do adventures? Do I want to do, um, I've been reading this Stephen Kotler book. I've read it a couple times, but now I've been listening to it again. 
Um, it's called Catching Fire, and mm. it's about flow state. And it's I know you recently spoke with Mike, who's yeah. who's a big studier of flow state. And it's funny, Mike and I started fl- studying flow state at the same time, and I didn't even know he was studying it. And then he started teaching, and I was like, oh my gosh, I've been studying the same guy. But Kotler talks about combination of flow state um, um, cause, causers, I guess, effectors. So like, if you run and that causes flow state, if you love Rufus to soul and that causes flow state. If you smoke cannabis and that causes flow state, try running, having smoked some cannabis and listening to Rufus to soul. Uh, the amplification of that flow state mm. is something that really, really resonates loudly for me in my life to where I'm now trying to throw in as many factors as I can of like, how many more ingredients can I put in the bowl mm-hmm. of flow state that I know are like locked in flow. It's going to happen. Mm-hmm. There's no way I can't ride my bike to the top of a mountain with you and not force sure be locked in the flow state the whole entire ride you know and so then you add nature to that then you add friendship to that and community and like all of a sudden you live in this vibrational plane that is so much higher than than you've felt before and something that you can bring people up to that other people feel and recognize when they're with you and that is attainable for us all but just like it takes us all doing it together to create it so yeah it's a certain level of consciousness you have to have about that rather than going through the motions and being really self-centric i think like the the flow state brings out this ability to focus and get into other people's eyes and understand what they're feeling and Mm -hmm. that's when you you walk up to someone and you meet them and you're like oh my god it feels like you're in my head like Mm -hmm. you know exactly what i'm going through yeah i fall for people hard and fast because of that yeah like men and women it's not a sexual thing it's an absolute like as soon as I see your light, I am so attracted to it and want it so badly and want to also give and share mine. I don't want to selfishly mm. take yours. I want to contribute and receive at the same level. And it's like it just takes off like fire in your life when once you've practiced it enough. Yeah. And Mike's research on that is really cool. We were actually saying we did our podcast and we kind of touched on flow state, but I'm like, we got to do an episode two that is just like flow state with Mike, you know, state, like one on one Oh one. Cause he is, he's really jumped head over heels into that stuff. Yeah, he has. And it's so funny. I think we both were discovering it internally on our own and then have studied it externally. And he's obviously taken it way further than me. So I think he'd be a great expert on it, but I'm definitely a good example of living it. Yeah. I, I, I like, and I'm not saying that again with a big head or an ego. I, I just truly know what, and all of us are. I think our whole friend group is some, like a group of people that are addicted to flow. And I think being addicted to flow is a perfect addiction. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, there's a lot of things that are unhealthy addictions. And I think there's a lot of healthy ones and, um, flow, finding flow state and creating flow state and also creating it for others, mm-hmm. not just selfishly creating it. And I think that's something we all do so well. Um, I, I know that I'm so lifted up whenever I'm around my group of friends that are also in, in a pursuit of flow, you know what I mean? And they're yeah. not necessarily, looking out for themselves, they're trying to create it for me as well. And when everyone does that, it just creates that vibration that I spoke about that's so so apparent and so fun to be in. Yeah, it's rad to be doing something really, really hard with your friends where you, you, you both are so tackled into what you're doing that you're going through it like biking up this giant mountain and then you look over and you're like that's my dog yeah and you're like he's going through it too let's do it yeah i recently skied like the ski run of my life and my friend was about 100 yards in front of me oh yeah and the true joy of watching him versus i forgot i was even on the run and it was like supposed to be the best run ever for me but i got caught up in him it was just like watching my friend oh my gosh my heart was so happy every time i think about it it makes me smile so 
Good stuff. That was the one on Buttery Bros. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, I got to see that. So I guess uh, let's give people a little bit of background about um, the Japanuary trip you just went on, and, and yeah. you know how that came about. Yeah, um, I am an avid skier. Um, I love skiing powder in particular. Um, for those who don't know, there's skiing and there's skiing powder, and they're two diverse things. Um, mm. One is scraping across the ground, and the other one's floating on clouds, basically. And so you can imagine the profound one would be the floating on clouds. It's really hard to do. It's got to have the right gear. You got to have a good car because you can't ever drive to when it's snowing it when like the best unless you have a good car. So there's a lot of things that can limit you from getting it, but getting it is worth it. And so in Japan, they have the most snow in the world in northern Japan in January. So they call it Japanuary or Japao. Um, I just recently found Japow. out. Yeah, Japao. <laughs> I just recently found out since I got back, and this is so funny because it's I'm a very lucky human and blessed. My mom told me to say not lucky, um, but I'm very blessed. And apparently, there was some world record snowstorm there this uh, while we were there, and mm. we didn't even know about it. Um, we knew it was, didn't stop snowing the whole time, but so we got our hands on exactly what we wanted, and. Um, I like, I was kind of fearful. I was going to have to go alone because I was like, who can just like go in a couple months notice and invited a bunch of friends. And they all said, yes, everyone was like, of course I'm going. And so, um, my good friends, Marston and Heber who have a YouTube channel called buttery bros. That's kind of a CrossFit slash fitness slash wellness, um, YouTube channel that they go around and shoot stuff. I invited them to come just because they're my good friends. I had no idea that they would want to film an episode, but they decided to film an episode out of it because it is a cool thing to, to do and for the world to see. And so then they brought a friend of theirs, Billy, and I brought a friend of mine, Nate, here from Denver. And then we all we invited Chief uh, Matt O'Keefe, who is um, a legend in the CrossFit space and was Matt Fraser's manager, and he's his business partner and hard work pays off, HWPO, and a real solid dude. And everyone, all five of those guys are just like rock stars. And so... I basically got this like dream team of humans to all say yes to come to Japan with me on a trip that I planned that I've never been. We were just looking at the globe. Never been over here. And this old Asia was really intimidating and scary to me, to be honest. And um, going over there and also like somehow accidentally being in charge, I was like, oh, gosh, what have I gotten myself into here? And so we land in Tokyo and I've never been to Tokyo and I didn't even I'm the type of person like I like. I like not knowing before I go. And so I didn't Google Tokyo. I didn't Google like what's going on there. So I get there just to find out it's the largest city in the world. There's 40 million people on this tiny little dot on the side of the tiny little dot on the map. And I was so blown away. I I was so blown away. I couldn't sleep for two days from the energy of the city. Mm. I was just there like buzzing and it wasn't like a insomnia. can't sleep. It was like, I need to be walking around. I need to be looking at things. I need to be just like soaking this in. And so got my mind blown by Tokyo. Then we went to Hokkaido, uh, which is where the skiing is. We had the, like I said, the record snowstorm, which I had no idea about, but I knew that it was the most snow I've ever seen and had just a blast skiing with these guys and everyone skied great and fun part of fitness is that like usually when you go do something like that and there's six people like somebody's going to be dragging behind somebody's got the sore knee or the whatever and that's totally fine but we had just six savages and so everyone was just like skiing for long hours and just such good vibes and no one was complaining and um, and we all kept up and we all stuck together, which is really hard to do with a large group. And, um, it was just such a blast. And then on the way back, I was so moved by Tokyo that I actually extended my trip for four days and stayed there by myself, which was 
a really, really cool thing. I've been telling people that basically I went from a participant to an observer. The first time I was there, I was with five friends and participating in all the fun things of Tokyo. And the second time I was there with a mask on by myself and with no ability to communicate with any single human being there um, because no one speaks English there and I don't Mm. speak any Japanese. And it was a really, really cool way to um, kind of walk differently in the city and to see things and just to watch the culture and watch the people and the beauty of the people. They're beautiful people. Their skin is so fair and like they're all um, like there's no protein so everyone's very lean and skinny and you know like they all wear black and there's like a vibe and, and I was really really attracted to it and I have to get back. Um, mm. I think that Tokyo is somewhere it's not talked about enough. I mean, it's if you've ever been to New York City and you've walked like in Lower Manhattan, you walk out of it eventually. Like you're, you know, 15 blocks. This buildings are a little smaller. The in Tokyo, it's like you get on a train and you go 40 minutes from downtown Times Square and you get off and you're in Times Square wow. still. You're like, what the heck? This city is massive and it's as far as your eye can see. And if you go up on the 50th story of a building and look in a 360 panoramic, you can only see downtown in every direction, skyscrapers wow. in every direction. It's absolutely crazy. So um, somewhere you should get to. And also like as someone who had never been and was nervous, I would tell anyone who has never been, it's not a big barrier of entry. It feels like it, mm. but I, I was, we were jokingly looking at the map. If you go from the U S and you go East, it's a long way, but if you go West, it's just a little hop right here. And, yeah. um, it's like about a 12 hour flight and, um, it's very easy to navigate. The train systems were very w- welcoming to Americans. I was able to safely, and that's the other thing. It's like one of the safest cities in the world. Mm. And so there's no crime. There's no, no one litters. There's no like graffiti on the trains. Everyone just sits in his, like, it's like culturally just the thing to be cool. Mm. And that's what they do there. And that's how they all live. That's how 40 million people can survive in such a small little spot. How do they keep the crime down? Is, is Were there any techniques that you saw that... The culture, just the, culture. yeah, it's you know how our influence. culture is just like to take pictures of yourself and put it on Instagram. Yeah. Their culture is to wait until the light says green to walk across the street. Wow. Their culture is to let someone walk in front of you. Um, I miss. I was missing a flight, and a lady from another airline ran with me to my gate to show me. To, she didn't even work for the airline, what? and ran yeah, and ran me to the right door, and ran me down, and stayed with me until I got on the plane. Did she have wheels? Um, she was chopping. Yeah, <laughs> she was chopping. But like, I was like racing. She's like, I'll come with you, and like, could barely speak my language, so knew that I was going to have a really hard time. So she like, and that's the effort that you see. Honestly, I compare it to Burning Man. I'm a big burner, and it's something we could spend a whole episode talking about but it's burning man is a hundred thousand people for one week in this little city in the desert and and everyone has a common enemy which is this weather is harsh and it's hot and it's hard to you know nights are cold and like the wind is crazy and like the common enemy in tokyo is there's 40 million people in this tiny little town mm. you have to figure out a way to make it or mm. else everyone's going to be miserable and the two places were both two of the places that stood out to me of any places i've ever been in my life where the organization and synchronicity and like non and it's obviously what's funny is it was better at in Japan than at Burning Man. Like Burning Man still has rude people. Like you know anyone can get a ticket, and so it's not just a utopia. And in Tokyo is not a utopia by any means, but Tokyo is very organized and polite and and just like well played out. And I loved watching it. Mm. You have any good Japan for me? Like or Japan? You have any good Japanese sayings for me? I learned one word. Yeah, actually, I do. I have a good one. Okay. Um, so ready. there's a. Um, 
Tom Segura is a stand-up comedian. Yeah. And he has a bit about um, his name sounds like you can make anything sound Japanese. And so he's like, yeah, I mean, if you wanted to, you could introduce me as like Sagura. And so, uh, and so the first night in Japan, my friend Marston and Heber and I were joking about that. And we're like, like, I have to back up real quick. I know arigato is thank you. And when I left, I knew arigato. I knew that word when I got there. I knew that word when I left. I didn't learn a single word. Met Americans that had been there for 10 years and asked them, how's their Japanese? And they're like, got four words. Like, it's a hard language to uh, learn. And so I thought I was going to pick some up, and I tried so hard. And I, I was looking at the train stops, and if there was, was an S as the train stop as the first letter, I'd look at that Japanese symbol and look for other tops that start with an S, and they wouldn't have the symbol. And I'd be like, oh, my gosh. But so moving forward, we were like determined to learn some Japanese, but we went with Sagura. And mm. so uh, anytime we would meet people, we'd say, Sagura. <laughs> and, like, and like people, probably, I don't even know what that means in Japanese, but that was our big Japanese word, which isn't a Japanese word. So leave it to the Americans to make up their own word. But um, Dude, you're so canceled. Yeah, yeah. Sagura. Yeah, it was. Uh, and then arigato and domo arigato is like, like hello and thank you. Um, but yeah, man, it's a tough one, dude. It's so domo is that hello? I I think so, but I'm not gonna go on record as saying anything <laughs> besides arigato is thank you because I know I got that one for sure. So you guys had this epic ski trip. Um, what was the vibe like? Were you doing uh, more resort stuff or backcountry? We did both. So we did a lot of inbounds resort stuff. We did a little bit of hiking out of the resort um, and skiing back inbounds. And then we did a heli day and the heli day was super rad. I've been lucky enough to go up on a helicopter a couple of times in Alaska. Um, it was Alaska's pretty wet snow and I didn't have like a powder day. I just got to go ride in a helicopter and ski. So it was definitely like a different experience for me, but the rest of my friends had never been on a heli before. And it's, it's like your first time. It's definitely intimidating. Like, and these, especially these guys whip the hell out of these things. Like they're not just like, like flying around and, um, they like to like scare you a little bit, I think. And so, um, and then also my friends, I, I'm just like this ignorant optimist. Like mm. I, whenever I hurt myself, I'm always like, I can't even, I didn't even think of that. Like, whereas I'm like doing something, you know, flying on a mountain bike, 40 miles an hour down a hill. And then I wreck and I'm like, I never thought I was going to wreck. Um, and so I just am very optimistic and like everyone else is like worried about avalanches and the helicopter wrecking. And I was just thinking like, we are going to ski so much. Snow. <laughs> and so when we got out there, I, I definitely could feel my energy was opposite of everyone else's, but they were all just kind of like, go ahead, Bickle. Like you're the most excited, go for it. <laughs> and so I got to ski a lot of first runs, which is really nice on a heli day too. Um, but yeah, man, we had a guide and, um, they would take us to a different part of the mountain every time. And funny story, we go hike up to the first run of the day and he's like, everyone's like, they're a little nervous and he's like i'm gonna check and make sure this isn't gonna slide real quick and he jumps on and it slides the whole thing slides oh, and no. everyone's like ah. and it was on a north facing part of the mountain i hadn't had sun on it I, I had a really good idea that there was a chance that that would slide and so i was like okay cool i'm glad we're past that now we don't have to worry anymore and then the whole day we all skied our faces off there was nothing sketchy and um and everybody had a blast so there was no uh no consequences from the from the day of skiing Oh, there were some serious consequences. Uh, yeah, I was like, no, I, I mean, I wrecked a few times with the snow was soft. Um, I did nine runs, and on the fifth run, my f- fourth run, my fr- toes were freezing. Fifth, they were frozen. Sixth, they were bad. Seventh, eighth, and ninth, they got into a whole new world that I've never experienced before. Um, I've had frozen feet before, and they were fine t- four hours later. And um, this was like that plus like four more levels. And I have severe frostbite on my toe, on my two big toes, and on my second toe on my left foot. Um, 
I finally, today's the day I figured out that like, I think what happened was there's like obviously layers of skin. I think when you burn yourself or you get a blister, it's like one, maybe two layers of skin. I think I'm about 13 layers deep. And mm. so like, I, you know, and I'm not counting exactly, but I think I'm multiple layers deep of, of burn from yeah. freezing. And, um, I talked to Chandler, my buddy Chandler, who's in the army. And he told me that it's when the, when you Make, hurt the muscle is when you've screwed up really bad. Mm. And so I'm actually in a really good spot because there's no muscle on my toe. Mm. And so um, it's just flesh and nerve endings. And he said the nerve endings may be a little dull, but that um, that the skin is going to all come back. And I can – today was – I'm rounded a corner today. I'm saying that. I, I think I'm like – I'm feeling good about it. So it's been two and a half weeks and, um, yeah, just <sighs> – it's like I think back on it and I'm like, would I change anything? And I don't think I would. But now that I have – Trustbite, I would change something. <laughs> um, so, like, but be, with the ignorance that I was brought to the table with me on the heli day, I, I would do it every time. So, yeah. if you if you knew you were going to get frostbite, maybe you wouldn't have had such a spectacular day. Totally, either. I would have been, been thinking about frostbite. You yeah. know what I mean? And and that, I'm very in the moment person, and um, it it bites you in the butt sometimes, or the toe, and <laughs> uh, and sometimes it it pays off in, in more often than ever. It pays off almost every time. So. I like that they. Uh, in the video this is the buttery bros video i had never seen it until you told me about these guys they're really funny and their videos are awesome and the the video i watched it's like very focused on you being a 300 pound cheetah and <laughs> I, I love that analogy so i guess for folks that aren't familiar with old bickle to bickle now uh give them a little precursor of what that whole story is about yeah um grew up uh pretty hefty my whole life big kid you and me both baby. yeah didn't really have anything to like it was it was kind of a hindrance and then i became a football player and it was like oh now i'm an o-lineman you know it's just yeah. like I, I there was a category for me and so i was big and embraced it and loved it and then um, was a very strong, large, overweight man in college and um, was probably like 350. It was in the era, I'm, I'm 42, so in the era of college football where linemen were earth movers still. They're pretty athletic now. Um, we were athletic then. We were kind of right as the, as the conversion was happening, but um, I was definitely like incentivized to be huge. Like they, they didn't have a problem with me being 350 pounds, and I, I brought the hammer at 350 pounds, and I was a strong guy. Squatted 860 in college. So, yeah, something that's fun to share. I did um, 850 yesterday, but I, I just know. Well, but that was, I was a lot younger, yeah. you know. Um, and so um, had a really fun experience in college, was a really big guy, had a fraternity of big boys, embraced the, the belly, embraced the bigness of it, felt like it was like I was a sexy big man. Yeah. I really did. And, and it's something that I didn't have that confidence in my, my roommate and best friend in college is kid Antoine. He was another lineman and Biggie Smalls and the rapper eight ball gave me all the confidence I needed. Three, go. three really big guys that like that women loved. And I was like, all right, I can do this too. And so that kind of created a comfort zone in my head to where, um, when I got done playing and got done training, the, the weight started to gain weight because I wasn't working out and I was eating like a fat boy. Um, I, I felt safe there, I guess, and I had other friends that were big. And so um, it's something that I was just like allowing to happen. And in, in synchronicity with the legalization of cannabis, moving to Colorado, um, starting to make a lot of money. Mm. Um, and so had grew up really poor and the first time in my life having a, some success and, and excess money, which allowed for excess eating. And I'm an excessive person. I, we've already learned that on this podcast, I'm sure. And so um, like anything else, I wanted to be the best at eating and traveling. And so 
Um, when I got done playing football, started growing cannabis, I met the woman in my dreams at the time. We started traveling the world. We started um, seeing music all over the place, and we would eat fine meals, and sometimes three or four a day. Mm. And um, fast forward 10 years, I had gained a pound a month for 10 years. Wow. And so um, I went from 350-pound offensive lineman at 20 two years old to 32 years old and 475 pounds. And I was in a really bad spot. Whoa. I didn't know it. I was hiking 14 ers I was skiing 50, 75, sometimes a hundred days a year. Um, I, I thought the world was getting smaller. Um, like airplane, I had to get the extra seat belt on the airplane. Like wow. I wouldn't fit in booths and I would create stories in my head of like, Oh, these airplanes are just smaller. They're just trying to fit more people on here. Not that's, what has that have to do with the seatbelt? That's how much in denial you can be in your head oh. about something like this. And so, and I, the problem I had is two things. One, I'm a very big, um, I love to pour into people around me. And so I was so focused on pouring into people around me that I was ignoring my own cup. And so I got myself into a really unhealthy place trying to help everyone else be healthy. It was so mm -hmm. silly and I didn't even see it. And then the other piece of the puzzle was that I truly didn't know how to love myself and I didn't understand like I hadn't figured out my relationship with God. There was a lot of reasons where I was just empty and I just didn't know how to fill in those pieces. And so as a very happy, joyful, full of life person, I was missing a lot of stuff and just kind of like filling in the blanks as I could. Um, I came to a point where a bunch of my friends had lost weight um, and all my big boy O-linemen were all starting to get their heads out of their butts. It's 10 years now, 12 years out of college. Guys are having problems and heart stuff. And um, I ignorantly had nothing. I mm. never went to a doctor. I mean, I'm sure I had a lot going on, but I never checked it out. And then um, one day I was eating a Chipotle burrito or a, I wasn't Chipotle. I don't want to. I want free Chipotle for the rest of my life if I can ever pull that off. It was Kidoba, actually, for real though. Um, I was eating Kidoba <laughs> burrito and chips and guac and uh, queso and a steak quesadilla and, and a large soda, and that was my regular order wow. every single time I got Kidoba, and that was one meal of the three I was going to eat that day on top of snacking and desserts, and so. And and I was eating it, and I was burnt out on it. And I was and like, and I was burnt out on like I could have ordered pizza. I was burnt out on pizza. I could have went to the grocery store and bought muffins or all the things that I used for food. I was burnt out on. And it's everyone wants this beautiful aha story like the doctor told me you're gonna die, and I ran ten miles a day after. It was not that at all. I was like living the time of my life, and I was eating this burrito, and I was like. This tastes like crap. And I was like, what sounds good? Donuts, no. Pizza, no. Steak, no. And I was like, maybe I should try vegetables. I was like, maybe something new. You know what I mean? Maybe. And I was like, and everyone's losing weight around me. Maybe I should try losing weight. And I went to, I was married and I went to my wife at the time and I said, Gretchen, I would like to be healthy. And I had the downest, coolest wife. She was like, word, let's do it. Done. And I clicked on Whole Foods um, has a links eating right. It, saw, it said eat right now, eat right, comma now. And I was like, I want to eat right now. So I clicked on it because I thought Whole Foods was like the, the representation of healthy people. Sure. And, and so that eat right now, it taught me the Andy scale, which is the aggregate nutritional density index. I think the Buttery Bros brought it up on their um, episode. Maybe they did or not. I'm not sure. But I talked about it to them too. And it's a, it's a scale that shows, scores food one through a thousand and a Coca-Cola is one and um, rainbow charge a thousand. And so uh, my true ignorance of not knowing how to eat food, I didn't know what was healthy and I was afraid to just eat. I was like, what do I eat? And so found that what was, what was a thousand, uh, like, uh, rainbow chard, kale. Okay. And, so like veggies, yeah, really, really dense vegetables. Gotcha. Um, and what an Andy aggregate nutritional density index, the short of it is how much nutritional 
value is in one bite of this food. Understand. And this is score is a thousand and this score is one. Mm. And so um, you just want to have, and, and you want to have as much of that in you as you can. So I bought a nice Japanese steel knife and a bamboo cutting board, which is a game changer because I learned to love to cook. And, and like, I still have the knife and I still have the cutting board and I love chopping up vegetables and preparing food. And I think getting educated in food and macronutrients and fats, proteins and carbs is huge. And I think getting educated in how to cook food and how to love yourself and, and treat yourself to nice meals because eating healthy is not eating disgusting. And I thought that's something that anyone who's super overweight is so worried that the healthy food is gross and that they're going to miss out on all the fun stuff. And so, mm-hmm. um, ended up losing 180 pounds. Um, use CrossFit to help, uh, use the burning fire of, of, passion of life and craziness in my head and, um, and knocked off a a 180. And so I went from like 475 pounds to, um, 295 sitting here in your, on your chair right now, which thank you chair. Um, I'm still a big boy, but, um, I wish I could say I lost it all once and I have probably lost a total of five to 600 pounds because I can never, quite keep it off and stay there and i'm always going to be addicted to food for the rest of my life Mm -hmm. and um through unpeeling the layers of this change this radical change which anyone who's lost a bunch of weight will tell you it's very psychological also it's very emotional it's very mental and it's physical it's not Mm -hmm. just losing the weight and so peeling the layers and finding out i'm addicted to food finding out that i'm never i like i like to used to act like i had it like I got it. I'm good. I'm so fit. I'm. Yeah, I don't ever have it. And I, I gotta tell my friends that. And I gotta have people around me that keep me accountable. And I gotta like prepare my life every day so that I don't fall into the trap of going and binge eating. And mm-hmm. I know that sounds so stupid. Like I, it's. But um, I live a life it where it does not sound stupid to me. Yeah, I live a life of celebration and joy. And the greatest form of celebration and joy is sharing food and, and, and c- community with your friends. And um, it's something that I I've consider myself to be good at. It's something that I think I'm known for. And so um, for me to find that balance and, and stay healthy has been, it's an ongoing process. And um, I sit here right now winning. So that's good. I'm crushing right now. And I feel so good. And I'm uh, getting ready to do uh, my first ever half Ironman, which is training for my first ever full Ironman. And um, in the next 24 months, I will have executed both those goals. I don't know how fast, but I can promise that there's no doubt in my mind that they will be executed. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm finding myself being around more endurance athletes and runners and left, less lifters and strongmen. And mm. um, I'm really enjoying it. And I'm just trying to be a dry sponge like I have been with everything else and soak it all up and um, asking a lot of my body because I'm a big guy, but I'm um, trying to find the right ways to love my body and balance it, which is uh, led me to a crazy yoga practice. I'm on 112 days in a row of hot yoga classes, which has been pretty profound. It's actually 16 weeks today. And so, Congrats, um, dude. yeah, just, in, I would encourage anyone. The, my thought on that is, is anyone that just do anything for 16 weeks every day, mm-hmm. do five pushups, do go for a walk around your block. Like Building some sort of discipline is incredible. Find something that brings you joy, hopefully, mm-hmm. and that also is beneficial to your body. If you can combine those three things, like joy, body, and consistency, like you're going to see some really profound changes in all the forms of your life, not just your body. Yeah, it's amazing. I think there's – I don't think – I know that there are folks listening to this when this is out that are going through some kind of weight transformation. And I think you're you're speaking a lot of hope to them. And I'm curious what your advice would be to someone that has tried multiple times 
and tried to keep the weight off and things just aren't working. Yeah. What's the first step to take for a healthy weight loss journey? Find a way to make it fun. Find a way and find it. a bunch of ways to make it fun. Mm-hmm. Like if you love tennis, go play tennis and get sweaty playing tennis, but don't rely solely on tennis or you're going to get sick of tennis and it's going to become a black hole and you're going to get stuck in it. Um, I have found that I've tried a lot of things and failed and I've tried a lot of things and had fun and I've come back to a lot of the things that I've failed at. And I think also like if you're overweight, you're probably painting yourself into a corner saying that these are the, I can walk, I can ride a bike and I can, you know, whatever, play pickleball. Yeah. And it's like, that is incorrect. And I am shattering that mold. And I climb, I run up mountains. I do all the crazy things that the guys write the excuse that they can't do or the shoulder injury, even not big guys, you know, the guy that hurt his knee and playing baseball when he was 20. And that's why I can't got my knee. Like there's, I hear, I hear excuses. And it's like the sooner you can shed those excuses and find ways to make it fun. Um, I have so much fun doing what used to be called working out and now is called hanging out with my friends doing fun stuff. Yeah. And it's hard and we suffer, but it creates a bond that's so much thicker than drinking beer together and getting drunk and throwing up off a balcony. And mm-hmm. it creates this camaraderie and this love and this joy that is like working against all the old ways that men used to bond and that our society asks them or, and women, not just men, all people bond. And, and we've just created this community where we can support each other in thriving, not in surviving and not in trashing ourselves. Yeah. It is sort of a, it's a way against the way our parents did it, but it is a very, remembrant kind of practice of the old like Mm -hmm. when you hear about spartan training and how from a young age boys would be grouped up and from a young age they'd be battling and sparring and picking up heavy rocks and and bonding in that way to the point where when they were adults they were inseparable and there was no questioning who was next to each of your sides because you've been struggling with these folks for Totally. 20, 30 years of your life. Yeah. And I think we all, something we all innately do and we don't even ever talk about is we all compete together all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, whatever we're doing, we're competing. We don't keep score. No one brags when they win. Maybe Eric. But uh, <laughs> no one else brags when they win. And, and it's like, it's a very simple way of like creating something so much greater than the sum of your own accomplishments. Mm. It's like when I'm out there and I get it, you know, if we're doing something heavy, I'm probably going to win. If we're doing something for a long time, you're probably going to win. And I think we both respect that so much about each other and want that from each other. Like I know you want to get stronger because when I work out with you, you you listen to me. And I know that when we talk about endurance sports or running or I'm, I'm all ears and, and you know, you have my full attention. So I think it's a, such a mutually beneficial thing. And, um, that created with competition, like, I'm competing with you every time I run with you up a mountain. I've never come close to you, but I'm competing. One day I'm going to show up on your heels. You know what I mean? Like, sure. and, and if I'm not, why am I out there? Like, and, and I know that's not everyone has that mentality and not everyone thrives that way. But I think the, the way the, the person that's like me loves that, yeah. you know, and, and cherishes that. And that's something that like we, you know, I think we'll always have and, and always be able to use from or push each other with. Yeah. I'm glad you feel that way. Cause I don't, feel like I have a step up on you in endurance stuff even. I feel like any endurance feed out there, I still feel like it's a coin flip. Like if you and I go get on a bike and we say, who's going to win to Colorado Springs? I'd be like, flip the coin. Yeah, I, yeah. I well, you, got me on the, you got me on foot. I'll give you, you got me on foot for sure. I got you on foot right now, but I'm, I'm pretty sure this triathlon training thing for you is going to change a lot. Like I, I know how committed you are when you get your eyes focused on something and just the, the, 
velocity you have like going towards this one goal, I can tell that you're gonna you're gonna change a lot about yourself in the next what Thanks, is it man. six months? Uh, yeah, I have six or seven months. I think I have a pretty cool plan. I got until October twenty second. I am. And this is totally made up in my head, but this is what I'm going with, is I'm going to spend the next two or three months, um, one, learning how to run and swim, because I know how to run and swim, but I um, have recently been told by a really good runner that I have a horrible running gait. And so I'm going to get a gait analysis. Um, and then I have a knee thing on my left knee that I want to just explore that the most it's going to be scoping it. Um, but I'm trying to fix it with running gait first and mm-hmm. like not blowing up my knee by doing everything right, hopefully. Yeah. And then the last case scenario would be just getting a a little bit of cartilage cut out. I'm going to become a complete and total savage cardio monster on a bike. And I know that that can, without any pain crush, like get me to where I could survive any Ironman. And then I'm planning on, um, t- like really ramping up the running for about three months before the actual, like just being a fit monster mm-hmm. and then really becoming a good runner over a three month period. Just so I don't put a lot of wear and tear on my body. Yeah. Um, and, like from right now until whenever just continue to lean out and see if I can't take like a 250 pound body, which would be insane for me. Um, I was 260 pounds when I was 14 years old. So see if I can dip under that 260 pounds at 14. My freshman year of high school, I was 260 pounds. Just different. I was six, four, 260, 14 years old. Like I like to say I was a big kid. Like my brother loves to point out that I was fat, but I, I mean, that's like, you were a different species than I was. And I had no idea. <laughs> I had no idea. I played soccer, you know, and baseball, and was like, there was no excuse. My, I didn't have a high school football team until I was a junior in high school, and I joined it because I was the biggest guy in the school, and we had a, we played an all JV schedule, so I was playing uh-huh. against thirteen and fourteen year old kids at seventeen, like manhandling these oh, people, no. and I had no toughness, but I was just like one hundred and fifty pounds bigger than everybody, so it was pretty fun crushing, yeah. People. Yeah, man. It's been quite a journey. Where do you sit? I know this is kind of a left turn, but I'm curious to get your take on this. Yeah. Where do you sit on social media in general? Like in terms of like the state of the union as it sits now for sharing like the positivity that you and I talk about, where does social media sit in there? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is it a little bit of both? It's just like any other drug. It can be good or bad if used in moderation or correctly or incorrectly and if used for the right reasons. Um, I'm in a really blessed place with my social media that I don't have to use it for money. A lot of my friends are monetized through their social media, and so they're just bound to that. And um, I've been able to use I, I Facebook was weird for me because I'd find myself like stressing out on somebody's cat that I've never met before, like that I was like roommates with sister in college, and she's posting because and I'm like worrying and and like I'm such an empath that. Like the whole mood thing and the whole, uh, you know, that was a lot of the opinions. That was a lot for me. Then this thing called Instagram came out and I was like, oh gosh, that was the good stuff from the bad thing, which was like, I just want to look at your pictures. I want a photo album of your life that I can scroll through and see what your life is. And I'd like to, to have one of mine. And so when used that way, I think Instagram's awesome. Um, I also think that we've, because of the captions, we've been able to, to use it to tell our stories and also try and inspire other people. Hopefully I'm not. I've been told that because of weight loss, I think I inspire people. And because of my pace for life, I think I inspire people. But truly, 
I I want to inspire people with my joy. I don't I don't like I don't have some passage that's going to change the way you think forever, but I just want you to look at my life and be attracted to the joy and then ask me about it and me tell you like this is spirit, this is God, this is you know, outlook, this is energy, this is all these things that like we can't see and touch but are very very real and, mm. and share that story and so I have a um I have a photo book of my life that anyone can go to and look at and I have what I think to be, you know, some wise words there sprinkled in there some places. So mm. that's what I'm going for. I have a closing can opener that I want to hit you with. All right. In your life, God is a big reoccurring theme. <clears throat> and I've seen, yeah, you, you walk your walk with that and, and live a very uh, div- divinity centric lifestyle. Did you hear that there was a UFO shot down? I have not heard that. There was a UFO shot down, apparently. The White House released it two days ago. Really? Can God and aliens coexist? Do they so, coexist? In the Christian Bible, they do not. In really? my head, they do. Oh, okay. So, um, and I, I'm not here to fight the Bible, but I'm also, I've never gotten anywhere by just falling in line. And I, as a Christian, I want to believe what I am have been have learned to believe, which is that... Um, we are made in God's image and likeness and that we are the only ones here. My brain can't let me let go of the fact that my ego would be too in charge of my brain if I thought that I was the only living species in this entire uh-huh. galaxy because I can't even grasp the galaxy and I can't even grasp God. And so to limit God's power to one species on one planet in one place. Maybe there's 20 Earths and we can't see them, and there's the same thing going on in another place. But there, I just don't think God's going to limit it to this little ball that right thing. here when there's hundreds of thousands of balls and there's millions. This, yeah, like trillions. trillions. Like I don't even, I don't, I don't want to overestimate. Or or that. none. Yeah. Or there's none. Yeah. The thing is, is we we don't know. I believe in the galaxy. I believe in, I I think that there's, I think that there is a vast world out there that we don't understand or know. I I am not a, I'm the guy that every conspiracy theorist hates my guts Mm. because I just don't go there. And Mm. like, even if it's, if they've proved to me it's right, then I'll be like, cool. But if not, then I'm just Mm -hmm. not going to like open that can of worms because my problem is then I'll spend the rest of my life yeah. going down that black hole. A friend of mine once told me you can only go down so many black holes and, and eventually you get lost. And so like if you pick golf and you want to be the best golfer in the world, you're, you know, your 5K time is going to suffer. And if you want to be the best 5K runner in the world, you might not hit a straight drive every time you go out golfing with your buddies. And so it's like, where do you want to dive in? Where do you want to go blind? And, and what is it worth going blind over? And for me, conspiracy theories is definitely politics, all those things. I, I aggravate a lot of people because it's like I've chosen to either, I'm either going to try and run for president or, you know, just like ignore it all and do my own thing. And I'm definitely not. I got too much weed pass to be the president, I think. So <laughs> I I struggle with that though, like the the singular focus. I've struggled with that like my whole life. Like I just get pulled in so many different directions. I'm like, ooh, I want a taste yeah. of that. But I like this, but also I could do this while I do that. And I I think some of my life maybe has suffered from that, but also yeah. I think a lot of the cool experiences come out of that that childlike curiosity. Totally. To and, explore. and and I mean there's there's a million ways to do it, and I I appreciate like the the most the greatest guitar players in the world were were probably terrible 
weightlifters, mm-hmm. but I appreciate that so much. And yeah. I, I, I love the ability, like the, the lack of care for anything else to only want to be the best guitar player in the world. I don't possess that. And so I find an appreciation for that. And I find an appreciation for um, an Eric Hinman who is going to try and be really good at 55 things and, mm. and do a pretty good job. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's so much, I think limiting our capacity is, is a beautiful thing when, when focused and on laser focusing on one thing. And I think limiting your capacity can be detrimental when you don't believe in yourself that you could do a million different things. Yeah. I think it's a great point. The reason I brought up the alien thing is I've been toying and writing about this, this thought process in my head, which is doesn't matter if there's aliens and the way you read that you have to be careful because it's not does do aliens matter. It's does the problem or whatever you're focusing on in your life remain relevant if aliens exist. So the what what your neighbors think about you if aliens are real that instantly means nothing no one cares what your neighbor thinks but taking care of the planet whether or not there's aliens out there that is still very important so i've been using this to like okay what am i thinking about what's throwing me off okay if aliens are real is that still something Do i need, need to, to worry be worrying about, about? Yeah. if it if it isn't then just like chuck it to the side and if it passes that test it is a truly important thing am i treating my family and friends with respect Am I spending enough time with my loved ones? So those things matter regardless if there's aliens or not. Yeah. And so I think it's a cool thought process to to run through. And I was okay. curious on your take. I dig it. My whole thought process on, on decision-making and fear and worry is I have adopted this mantra of no control over what happens to me, full control over how I react to it. Mm. And, and that's something I say over and over and over in my head every day. And the, the, the way I remember is to not give away my power. I have the power to, to determine how I react to anything, good or bad. So if the aliens are real, then I have the power to lose my mind and run around like a chicken with my head cut off because the aliens are coming. Or I have the power to believe that the aliens are going to be the homies and they're going to help us with global warming and they're yeah. going to like get us out into some planets we haven't gotten to check out yet. And like, so I, I, and I, again, I'm always going to take the annoyingly optimistic uh, approach to it. And I'm also always going to fear not because mm. the aliens haven't done anything to me yet. Yeah. You know what I mean? And even if they are real, that's even better news because they haven't done anything to me yet. And so I'm probably cool with the aliens at this point. You yeah. know, they'd, have, they'd have gotten me by now if they were real. So <laughs> I always uh. picture them as like homies. Yeah. I don't know. Like I know there's a lot of like fear surrounding that subject because of movies, but I feel like if there's aliens, they're probably going to dap you up. Like, yeah, you know. totally. The aliens, man. I hope there's aliens, but um, I don't know. I, I and that's so funny because that's a very controversial Christian subject, and um, and I I don't want to as a Christian, I don't want to like stomp on the the values and the beliefs of Christianity because there's obviously very important to me. But at the same time, like it's 2023, and there's a lot of things in the evolution of the world that have changed, and, and I know that like the one thing I know is that God is the center is at the center of it all, and that love is at the center of it all. If God is at the center of it all, and mm-hmm. so I try and be a reflection of that love, and I try and if if, if there are aliens, I'm gonna love them with open arms, and if there's not, I'll be like, well, God, I didn't know, you know, I would have no problem looking God in the eye and being like. I didn't know, you know, I just didn't know. Like I, <laughs> I, I didn't want to just be so sure, you know, and like it, it, I've never gotten direct wisdom from God. That's not aliens are not real and not to, mm-hmm. and I've definitely gotten wisdom from God in other places. So I'm cool with it right now. Well, I think you are a beacon of love, just like you're describing. And I think that's what you put out in, into the world. So 
I appreciate you. And uh, yeah, I want to make you a friend of the show and recurring guest. So Dude, anytime. we got to sit down and talk about cannabis and aliens like very frequently. Yeah, yeah. We'll do it again soon. All right. Well, appreciate you. Love and, you, dude. Uh, bye, guys. Stay well. Yeah. See you.